friends, I'm Tanya Luna, psychology researcher and educator. And I'm Brian Luna, Black Lives Matter. And you're listening to Talk, Talk Psych to me, me, a show where we take research out of the lab and into the streets. Let's get into it. So let's start with some shout outs for our listeners. Yep. Because they deserve it for tuning in and joining our conversations every week. Absolutely. Today, I want to send a big thank you to our wonderful listeners, Max and Vicky, Woo! Theo, Woo! and Masella. Whose podcast keeping score you should probably be listening to now instead of this one? No. Oh, all right. So thank you for listening. Uh, Bye, everyone. <laughs> We're gonna Bye, go listen everyone. to Michelle's podcast. <laughs> no, seriously, it's great, and you should yeah. you should probably listen to it. it if is? not right now, then immediately. Are you after. talking to me, or are you talking to people who are listening? Because I've heard it. You might want to listen to it again. If you're a loyal listener, thank you. Thank you for spreading the word and leaving reviews. And please reach out to us at any time on Instagram, or you can email talkpsychpodcast at gmail.com to let us know you're out there give us feedback, or request episode topics. Brian, you can email me there as well. (laughs) Okay, so as many of you know, the past few weeks, we've been covering the psychology of the seven deadly sins. Correct. Last week, we talked about wrath, which we've been feeling a lot of lately. And I want to stay timely and kind of keep talking about the emotions that we're experiencing right now. So I have a bit of a swerve for us today. Are you ready? Yeah. Today, we're going to be talking about the eighth deadly sin eighth i said that weird eighth yeah I was about to say how do you eighth. say that eighth 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 you can keep you sound weirder every <laughs> time this? you say it deadly sin number eight yeah eight 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 <laughs> so number eight yeah this is the one that was cut from the Wait. original list yeah but the movie's called seven yeah but the <laughs> podcast is gonna have eight all right let's go so this is the sin that was cut in the 6th century from the original list. Do you remember which Sixth one it was? 6th century. Oh, numbers are hard. This is why you write them instead of saying them. Absolutely. Do you remember which sin got cut? No. I don't know. Melancholy. Oh. I wanted to talk about it this week because the other sins didn't feel as pressing. And I think a lot of us are carrying around a whole new level of melancholy right now. What is melancholy from your perspective? First of all, it sounds like a... Like a word we don't use anymore. It sounds like a, like an old word that what people who read Dickens would describe as like depression or sad. I think they call that Dickensian. Dickensian, if you will. Generally, melancholy is described as a lingering, pensive sadness. Yeah. Any idea why Evargius Ponticus put it on the sin list in the first place uh, in the fourth century? I guess it has to do with my first initial gut reaction when you told me what we were going to talk about right now when you unveiled the topic that's the first i hear about it by the way so like when you just mentioned it right now my first thought was melancholy right now feels so self-serving and i imagine to ponticus it felt like it was one of those emotions that doesn't give mm. that doesn't allow for growth it's all internal I'm not saying that it's not a worthy thing it's not a valid thing depression is very real i've gone through it But at the same time, it really is like a dark hole that you kind of put yourself in and you keep kind of piling on. It turns inward instead of outward. Right, right. It can either pull people in or push people away. And it it can stop action at a time where we most need action, right? That's why I thought it would be good to talk about because I do think that a lot of us are experiencing this deep sense of emptiness and hopelessness. And I want to talk about the good and the bad, you know, the parts of sadness that can help us and the parts of sadness that are maybe holding us back from being able to help others. That sounds great. First thing is, I think especially in this country, in the U.S., as much as there's been progress in saying depression is 
valid, just as you said right now, which I think even 20 years ago, people wouldn't have said as openly. I think as a culture, we still kind of vilify sadness, or at least it's often seen as like this bad thing or a thing to hide or a thing to get rid of. Or something that you're doing to yourself. Yeah. You know, it, it like, seems oh, just, just cheer up. Come like a on. choice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even if you look at the... the feeling sorry for yourself. Feeling sorry for yourself. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, even if you look at the Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness is like baked in there as one of our unalienable rights. Unalienable. <laughs> yeah. Why do I feel like I'm saying words that I don't you're doing, feel right? You're doing unalienable great. rights. <laughs> it's yeah. a really important right. <laughs> do you think that's a lot of pressure? The pursuit of happiness? As like baked into our culture? <laughs> I think right now we're focused on the truth and justice part. Happiness, we haven't gotten to yet as a country. Mm -hmm. We haven't allowed ourselves to fix everything else so that way happiness is actually a pursuit. Mm. Because right now we're still pursuing justice and truth and equality. So happiness, no, I, I don't think it's pressure at all because I don't think we've even come close to a time when we're, we're happy. I mean, I think the country celebrates really well. I mean, we throw fireworks in the air <laughs> and we have great parades and everything else. But I do think that's like putting like a, a nice painting in front of a dumpster fire sometimes. And you're just like, hey, look at this painting. Isn't mm -hmm. this great? I do think that we make a really big deal out of happiness. I think that we talk a big game about being happy and trying to get better at happiness. That's I think it it's even little things like when someone is sad in this country, you cheer them up right away or you say, like, stop crying. Mm -hmm. It's part of our culture. It happens in our families. Like, how was sadness treated in your family? <laughs> we could. <laughs> That's an odd sorry, reaction. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I just... <laughs> Uh, uh, I'll give you something to cry about. You know, like, oh, don't you? so it was like... Oh, you want to be sad? God damn it, I'll give you something to cry about. You know, we're like, okay, all right. Well, that's fair. So it was like threatened out of you. Yeah, well, I mean, we just... They treated it like Ponticus. You know, it was like... Yeah, because it was like, <laughs> if you were sad... Say say you didn't... You were sad because like, we got food and there were onions in it. And I was like, well, I'm not eating. I get all pissy. I'm like, well, then don't eat, God damn it. You then guess what? You're, you're having sleep for dinner. Enjoy your dreams. I hope they give you the nutrients you need. You couldn't be upset about anything. You couldn't be sad about anything. Like, you had to be so grateful for everything, which made you resent it more. But uh, no, no, no. I don't think sadness was <laughs> was something we were allowed to feel too much. And, I, and I'm sure it was like one generation to another. So what about you? How was your family? How did they deal with this sadness? I come from a sad-ass family. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Not only was literally every single person I've grown up with clinically depressed, I come from a sad country <laughs> like well, there's actually a lot of evidence that sadness gets passed down <laughs> in your family at an yeah. early age i'm glad you find this funny well i've just heard your celebratory songs oh for our that, birthday songs birthday well anything like all of your songs are like they sound like marches or funeral marches or processions or yeah something. do you know that our my mom just sent me a, a yeah, message about yeah. this recently where you know in the u.s it's like happy birthday to you the soviet song we sing on our birthday is about regret and <laughs> loneliness <laughs> it is surprised. such a sad song that people will regularly tear up when they hear that song well, yeah because you don't want to goddamn hear it every year like <laughs> i look forward to happy birthday i'm like oh god because i know there's going to be cake here there's going to be like there may be revolution like every every goddamn birthday you're going to hear it so uh, we'll talk about the soviet union in a moment i wanted to share the study that was done recently by osborne and team that's a little bit more timely. So they interviewed black parents and caretakers who said they'd experienced racism and bias in the past year, which is a large percentage of black mm -hmm. Americans, obviously. And they were in the state of chronic 
bias preparation. Bias preparation is when you're like, I know it's going to happen again. I know it's going to happen again. I have to kind of like emotionally prepare myself for it. And what was so tragic about the study is that they found that people who had experienced racism passed on that sadness to their children, even if they didn't talk about racism and bias. So it just sort of shows you how you can start to carry it in your body. And even if you don't talk about what's going on, in cultures and subcultures that experience this chronic stress and loss and fear and grief, it becomes the norm in how you're interacting with your family, and then it gets passed on and passed on and passed on. So speaking of the Soviet Union, where I'm from, the whole culture is melancholy. Like, even if you look at our photographs, or if I, sh- I feel like you've, you've said this to well, me. Freaking check off. I mean, like... <laughs> You know what I mean? There's a reason why there are no musicals from Chekhov. You know what I mean? (laughs) But I was going to say, if you look at our photographs, people are always like, why does your family look so miserable? Yes. Yes. (laughs) We don't smile in our photographs. So at the birth of photography, like when you see the old photos from the old West, everyone would look like so miserable. That's also because they had to stand there for a really long time. So that's my point. It's like they weren't allowed to smile because any movement would screw up and blur the photos. So they had, because they had to stand longer for the exposure. So when you showed me your photos, I was like, how old are you? Are you a vampire? (laughs) Because no, here you were. Well, they're black and white. Yeah, they're black and white. They're all like from photo paper. I've never seen, but like (laughs) I, that you would find in a a lockbox in a cavern, you know, hundreds of years ago. So I I opened this up and I'm like, wait, is Tanya a vampire? Like how old is she? All your photos, no one is smiling. No one is moving. And you were like, this is when I was six. And I was like, who? Your great, great, great. You look just like your great, great grandmother. Do you remember what you told me about smiling in your culture? I don't know. You were like, if you smile too much in front of my family. People think you're stupid. People think you're stupid. <laughs> like there's something wrong with you. Like you have a head injury. This is one of the biggest the? areas of culture shock when Soviet or former Soviet people <laughs> move to the U.S. You're just like, what is going on here? What do you think when you look at the American smile? <laughs> Do you think that people in the U.S. are actually happier than other countries in the world? I mean, that's a loaded question right now. But I do think with all the entertainment, everything at our fingertips, accessibility of happiness is there. But the underlying thing is there is like that, what you were saying, when is it going to happen again? You know, whether it be like what you were talking about with racism or, or bias or any of that stuff. There is that. There's or maybe it's disproportionate, the... depending on how much privilege you have or how you grow up or what your environmental factors are. The UN actually recently released its World Happiness Report this March, and they found that the U.S. was number 18 on the Wait, happiness list. The UN has a World Happiness Report? Yeah, they do it every year. They Imagine it... you're on that team, <laughs> the UN happiness team. Like, how obnoxious... Is it? I mean, it's about people, life satisfaction. Come, like, yeah, you're, say you're in this body of government and you're like, okay, and next week the goddamn UN happiness team is coming. So can we just <laughs> cheer up a little bit, open some blinds, for Christ's sakes. Last year we were 19. I want to be ahead of the U.S. It's not going to be hard this year. I know, but still, like, that's, what a, what a weird thing. I think like, it's actually UN... kind of cool because if you think about, like, what country might I want to live in if I want to leave the U.S.? And bring my misery there to bring them down, Sure. I mean, so the U.S. uh, scored or came in at number 18 out of 150. Ukraine, where I'm from, was number 123. And I think that's being generous. (laughs) Who was last? 
Afghanistan. You mean war-torn Afghanistan. Mm. Sure. Yeah. And who was first? Do you want to guess? Germany. No. Okay. Um, These are happy freaking people. Canada? I think they're like one or two notches above the U.S. But no. Finland. It's almost always freaking Finland. Why? Close runners-up are all Nordic, including Denmark and Switzerland. I don't understand. They they have one of the... And nothing against the Finnish. <laughs> but they have one of the... the they worst. don't care if you have something against they them. They're number the, one. They're number one. They have one of the lamest country names I've ever heard. Finland. They're an island, Our right? country I mean, is just two letters. Or really long. What are you talking about, two letters? U.S.? A. Oh, three letters. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Wow, let me see that passport again. Anyway, and it's possible that in the U.S. we're even lower than 18 because, again, as I was saying, in our country, sadness isn't even something we understand well. Mm -hmm. On that note, what do you think is the purpose of sadness? Like, do you think it's a problem or does it play some kind of important role? I mean, I would imagine since it exists, it has to play some kind of certain role. Um, I think it's helpful for empathy. I think it's helpful for connection, Mm. uh, especially right now. The outrage that came from the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, Tony McDade. Yes, the outrage was there, but I think a lot of us had to feel sadness in order to get there. Psychologist Paul Ekman has found that sadness is cross-cultural, so it is very much human. And so in many ways to be human is to feel sad from time to time. And I think that's important because if we treat it as this thing that we have to like stomp out or ignore or try to stop other people from feeling, we're missing out on this really important aspect of human experience. And most psychologists believe that sadness serves two functions, very much to your point. The first one is signaling to others that you need love and care. Hmm. It's a social expression that brings people together. Even if you think about grieving and loss and loneliness, those are all cues for your body, almost like pain, physical pain tells Mm -hmm. you something is wrong. Sure. Sadness can be a cue telling you, I need others right now. The other part of it we'll talk more about shortly is sadness makes you slow down and start to understand or pay attention to what are you missing or what is an unmet need for you right now. Hmm. And to your point about maybe first you have to be sad before you can get angry, sadness can be a really important first step before you get angry Mm -hmm. because it can help you figure out what direction should I send my anger into. Makes sense. And getting back to your point where like, is it necessary I mean, it must be because animals feel sadness. Yeah. I mean, animals mourn their loss. There must be some valid point to it. And I do think that some sadness is brought on. I know that when I was feeling depressed, I would pile that shit on. I would pile that shit on. I would pile other people's sadness, you know, and just because there was a comfort there. There was yeah. a comfort in that sadness. It's okay to, to, to visit, but you don't want to live there. I think that's the thing about us. Because I think as a country, we are not skilled at sadness. We either overload ourselves with it or the more common thing probably is to mask it or to suppress it or to try to numb it. And maybe that's with distractions or maybe it's with other emotions or even forms of self-medication like alcohol, like food, like drugs, obviously. And those are all ways for us to sort of hide the pain from ourselves. It's almost like if you broke your leg and your strategy for dealing with it would be just to take painkillers and not walk (laughs) and like watch Netflix and get high and do whatever you needed to do to just not think about your leg. I guess I know a lot of people who broke their legs. (laughs) 
<laughs> right, where we've all broken our legs at some point. Psychologists have found that even physically hurting ourselves can be a form of self-medicating to escape the pain of persistent sadness. And on that note, I would like to recreate a bit of an experiment on you, conducted originally by Harmon Jones and team last year. Okay. Would you be okay with that? Yeah, I don't think I have a choice. I just ice brought some cubes? ice cubes. Yeah. You might remember the cold press test yeah. that Vanita Sandu asked you to do in the, in the and I had to in our cursing episode. I'm not going to ask you to do that, but mm-hmm. I am going to ask you to think of something sad, which should be easy right now. Okay. So just take a moment, get sad. I don't need a moment. You're already sad. Uh, yeah, I've been sad for <laughs> for a while now. Yeah, of course. On a scale of one to ten, how sad would you say you feel? With ten just being the most extreme. I guess at this moment, I feel like a. A seven. Okay. So now I'm going to ask you to hold these ice cubes in your hands. No, no. Take them out of the container. (laughs) On in both hands. Yeah. Just fill your hands with ice cubes. Two hands full of ice cubes. I feel like you're stalling. I feel like you're stalling. (laughs) Okay. And you all should. No, you can take them out. Here. All right. All right. I'm going to. But I I want to start when when we have to start. Just get. Just hold the ice cubes. Well, wait. When Uh, is there a timer? It's happening now. Pick them up and, and gra- like, I'm grab them real tight. I'm holding them. I'm holding them. And you should know, listeners, that Brian has... He's a big, strong guy. But he is really... Oh, he's... <laughs> he has really quite gentle hands. No, 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 no. Wait. If you're going to explain my hands, I'm no. putting them in there. Is the, is the thing started? Hold it a little longer. It started, yeah. A little longer. If you're going to give my biography, I'm going to put these <laughs> things down. I want to do the, the experiment. You're doing the experiment. You're holding the... How does it feel? It's freaking hurts. It's it hurts? Cold. Yes. What kind of... <laughs> I can't. Okay. Jesus Christ. What is that shitty experiment? All right. How are your hands feeling right now? They 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 feel fine right now. Thank okay. you very much. Scale of one to ten, how extreme is your sadness right now? <laughs> uh, I guess like a four. I mean, I'm a little concerned with, with my hands at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so mostly I like having you hold ice cubes, but this is exactly what the research team found. There's this effect of the, they they refer to it as the offset of physical pain, meaning the feeling of relief from physical pain reduces emotional pain. That's what they discovered. (laughs) That's what they discovered. They discovered that when you feel good after physical pain, you feel less sad. No, when you feel good when the pain goes away. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. After physical pain, after you've... Then you feel less sad. Is that is that what you're trying to tell me that these guys, Oscar Meyer and these people, who who did this study? Sesame Street, Harmon Jones, Harmon Jones, and team, and team, <laughs> and team. Harmon Jones. There's actually a and whole bunch team. of people. Of on course, this. there were because they had nothing else They're to all do. Just standing hey, around. Going, can I be on your team? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I get I'm it. Just... You're upset with me for making you hold ice cubes. <sighs> I actually think this is important research because it's an explanation for why depression can actually lead to self-harm, like cutting. Mm. Oh, now all of a sudden you're not no, making I'm st- noise. I'm still making noise. I'm just, I'm waiting for you. I'm like, mm-hmm. My point is that we as humans do a lot of things to sort of numb emotional pain, sometimes even going to the extreme of using physical pain as a way to mask some of our emotional pain. I'm sorry for your dainty hands. I'm just going to say this is going to be very troublesome. If I try to hold pizza or something later. So we do a heck of a lot to ignore and hide our sadness. What do you think blocks people in our culture from expressing their sadness? 
sadness is seen as weakness. Sadness is seen as uh, people who show sadness are seen as more, maybe more troublesome, dramatic. Maybe they want attention. Like drawing attention, attention to themselves. Yeah. You said as a kid growing up in Texas, sadness was kind of shamed, right? Especially in boys. Yeah. Yeah. Around sixth grade was a really hard time for me. At the time, my, my parents had, had just, I mean, they didn't have like one of those divorces on TV where they they sit down and they talk to the kids. Like we just didn't see one of them for a long time. They just left. And then, you know, we, we were split up as a family like almost overnight where I didn't see my brother and sister. So I was alone. Sixth grade came and that's like middle school. And boy, what a shitty, shitty thing middle school can be if you don't have money. And, we, you know, we had lost our home. So instead of like being sad all the time and showing people when they would make fun of me or they would bully me. By the time I got to 7th and 8th grade, just playing football and stuff, it just turned into rage. I mean, no one would recognize me if they saw me in the 8th grade. Like, I was wearing, like, just combat boots and, like, <laughs> torn down. Like, I was just I was just full of punch. And what do you I think was... taught you to turn to rage? First of all, it was the easiest to excess without having to understand. So I didn't understand my sadness. I didn't understand where the shame was coming from. I, I mean, I knew, but I didn't know how to deal with it. Rage was easy. Rage was was easy. I could talk back to my teachers. I can get into a fight. And the next thing I know, after that, I'm like, oh, there you go. I was feeling great. I just had to keep myself at that level mm-hmm. where I was constantly mad, constantly furious. And it was encouraged, right? Your coaches. Oh, my God. People around me were yeah. like, yeah, that's how you do it. That's that's what you do. It's kind of taught as a coping mechanism in a way. I, yeah, but at the time, we didn't know words like coping mechanism. No, like I'm not saying it. your yeah. coach was like, try this. But, but, I, but I think he was like, I think my coach was like, this plus discipline will give you yeah. the answers you need. Yeah. And, and in I, a way, he was right. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes that anger is what you need to be able to survive. But I'm guessing that's also one of the reasons that it took you a long time to work through the sadness and sure. the shame and the sure. loss. So let's touch on briefly on extreme persistent sadness, which can even show up as clinical depression. So extreme persistent sadness isn't depression. Well, depression isn't just sadness. I mean, I think you probably know this, but yeah. depression, it's usually sadness lasting over two weeks. Uh, it also includes symptoms like fatigue, mm-hmm. hopelessness, over or under sleeping, over and, or under eating, irritability, trouble concentrating, uh, body aches, stomach aches, anhedonia, which we briefly touched on in the past. That's a loss of sense of pleasure or interest and thoughts of suicide. So sadness alone usually isn't seen as depression unless it's debilitating, unless it's actually getting in the way of of your life. And by the way, if, as you're listening, this describes you or someone you know, please do seek help. If you don't have easy access to mental health support, a great resource is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Helpline. I'll just give you the number now. I'll also add it to the show notes. It's 1-800-622-HELP. 1-800-622-HELP. That's a great place to start. And if you're listening to this and you aren't sure or don't want to admit that, just know that anyone can feel depressed. Anyone can feel those symptoms that Tanya was just explaining. I did. And, you know, I'm not going to shy away and say that I pulled myself up by the bootstraps and I was fine. For a long time, it took me to get up to a place where I can just acknowledge it and, yeah. and face it. And everything came along with it. Depression, suicidal thoughts, fatigue, uh, lack of like really wanting to put myself out there yeah. and not being able to put a handle on it. And yeah. you need help. 
it's not something you can just walk out of. Yeah, you, know? you don't just switch. You don't just wake up and no. go. I'm not going to be depressed anymore. No, depression <laughs> is actually shockingly common, with about thirty percent of the population having at least one episode. Some psychologists, like Galecki and Talarowska, believe depression is the result of our frontal lobe not having evolved sufficiently to match our modern world and simply getting overwhelmed. Hmm. So they call the frontal lobe our Achilles heel. Others believe that given the statistical prevalence of depression, it might actually be adaptive. This is a bit of a controversial stance, but it's especially interesting because depression appears in every culture that's been studied, even hunter-gatherer, modern hunter-gatherer societies that are still around today. What do you think? Do you think depression might be adaptive somehow? Yes, I do. I think it helps us address issues that are long buried. It helps us kind of like trim the fat, so to speak. Could trim be the some... fat, stop that, paying that, attention that's... to other things and focus on the problem? Yeah, yeah. Like, it helps us, like... I've been eating vegan for a long time, so I don't understand that <laughs> I'm metaphor. Sorry. That's an old... I'm from. Te... <laughs> I'm still from Texas. I'm a vegetarian, but I'm still from Texas. Still use those... Trim, like, those... the avocado fat, <laughs> Exactly. Or... <laughs> Peel the avocado. I hate avocado. I don't even know what that... I don't even know You're how you are saying focus in on the problem. Focus in on the problem. And, and... Okay, go ahead. Oh, no, sorry. Oh, sorry. No, no, please. No, go ahead, No, no, please. please. Yeah. No, please. <laughs> So actually, researchers Andrews and Thompson argue that depression evolved to help us avoid distractions and focus on the problem that's in front of us so that we can solve it. Seems like also the Brian Luna theory, which is fascinating because this is somewhat controversial because it's basically saying this thing that millions of people are suffering from, maybe it's important to how we solve our own problems. And it might be why depression pushes us to pull away from others and lose interest in everything else. And one of the key symptoms of depression is constant rumination. Mm. It's almost like we get this like obsessive yeah. thinking, Absolutely. right? That's one of the symptoms. So they point to the fact that talking about and writing about our feelings and problems helps us. Psychologist James Pennybaker, who I talk about Penny Baker. like once a day, for example, he's found that expressive writing is one of the most healing things you can do, where instead of running from what you're feeling, you actually face it and you write about it for just 15 minutes a day, for example. So maybe there is something to depression pushing us to actually ruminate to a point of finding a solution. Look, when everything started happening, as the first protests were hitting, I was... Uh, Extremely sad. I felt what everyone was feeling. Helpless, sad, angry, lost. You were the one who told me about the Penny Baker expressive writing thing. And I was like, no, not for me. Thanks. I appreciate it. But that just sounds like some. And then today in my journal, I felt, you know, it felt, it felt a little like uh, up in the air, like ethereal, like almost um, new age. I came upstairs, finally did it. And I was able to address something about the fear I had mm. in me. Mm -hmm. Like, all this brought up fear. Uh, yes, rage, outrage, everything. But deep within me, something that I was bearing that was making me sad was how scared I was. All that fear about around authority, police officers, that I felt and the shame I felt with that fear and everything, it brought all of that up that I wasn't even aware of. Yeah. And, and that's what that expressive writing can do is just unlock certain things to get you to be honest with yourself because no one else is going to read that. Yeah. By the way, I still need to read all of your expressive writing. No! Um, still, I, I need to find <laughs> out. I haven't quite cracked the, the password on that, but I will. Uh, but no, no, no. I mean, but it, it enables you to sit down and be honest with yourself. Yeah. So Andrews and Thompson even point out research that shows that even more mild forms of sadness have been shown to lead to better decision making. Hmm. So when we're sad, we tend to be more thoughtful, more analytical. Except when it comes to like what you want to eat. 
<laughs> I think we all make bad choices when, when we're, we're sad. sad about, that's probably like, food. true. But that's again, that's when we're numbing the sadness. The more that's when we're trying to distract ourselves. So I think one of the big takeaways from the research is move with the sadness. Like find out what is the sadness telling you. Just like when you feel physical pain, it does not make sense to just take painkillers without figuring out what is it that's causing it. Sure. I do want to say something pretty controversial, or maybe it was kind of controversial, but I feel like you already said it. Hey, don't put it, don't put words in my mouth. So basically I'm just quoting you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll just speak from, from my own struggle with depression, which I've experienced since I was a kid. I find that in some ways depression is addictive. Maybe that's why in some ways it's considered one of the original eight deadly sins. Because I'll admit, like for myself with the pandemic and then the recession and now with Black Lives taken by police violence and all this hatred that's turned up, I'm finding myself kind of wanting to settle into the hopelessness. Even last week, I just found the depression sort of like starting to trickle in and getting to a place where consciously or unconsciously, I was like, I want to go that path because that means that I don't have to fight so hard to take action. I could just sort of ease into that sense of hopelessness. And that's both the beauty and the danger of hopelessness. I mean, I know I snacked on it when I was depressed. It warmed me. It comforted me. That sadness, that's all I could take. But the beauty of that is, is that you don't always have to do it on your own. If you find yourself a nice group of people, people that can support... Or one person. Or one person, support one another, and you don't have to carry that load all the time. This is an analogy I have that I remember growing up. At the end of every practice, we'd have wind sprints. And this is, this is going to sound like it's not connected, but just stay with me for a second. We had these things at the beginning of our very first practice of the season, which would always be on an August day, and it would be brutal. Like, I'm just talking brutal heat. Texas heat, all in pads. And our coach would always tell us, you know, sideline. And that meant we're going to do wind sprints. And we never knew how many, (laughs) sideline to sideline. We never knew how many he had planned for us. We never knew. And this was after a long practice. The first ones of the season were always the worst because you were just, you had nothing left. It was hopeless. I want to quit. I'm out. I, I can't do this anymore. I remember watching guys walk to the locker room because they were just like, I don't want to do this anymore. But... Some of my best friends, Mark, Chris, Jimmy, Mike, like these guys, whenever I couldn't do it, whenever I was like, I, I don't have any more in me, I can't, I would always feel someone mm-hmm. on either side of me grabbing my shoulder pad. Even if it's just like, you got, come on, just run with me. There's something about that that I've never forgotten. Mm-hmm. And I've always tried to be that hand on someone's shoulder pad that didn't have that hopefulness that didn't happen. I guess that's what I'm trying to remind myself of now. Maybe my job now is to be that person that grabs someone by the shoulder pad and says, we all have very little hope, but maybe I still have a little bit more. We can take turns, right? Like maybe you can be hopeless for a while while I turn up my own hope. And I know that I'm talking about depression as though it's a choice. And as you said earlier, I want to clarify that once you get to a certain point, it's not a choice. It like swallows you up. You can't get out of bed, let alone sign a petition or go to protest. And it turns into this kind of vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. For me personally, I've been there. I've been to a place where I was fortunate enough to have access to antidepressants and that was the one thing that got me through it after a point. But I do think that there's this window where you do have some choice, Mm -hmm. you know, where where the depression's like, hey, psst, come here. And you're sort of like, yeah, I can go in that direction or I can choose to choose hope, right? Or I can choose to keep fighting. 
So in our last few minutes, I wanted to share some tips for working through that sadness and staying hopeful and staying in the fight. Before I share my tips, what are yours? Reach out. Don't be afraid to be sad around people that you trust. You look at these wonderful movements happening right now all over the world. The news is showing us looting and the news is showing us rioting. But if you look at the protest and you look at how people are pulling each other along, like mm-hmm. helping each other along, being there, being present, reaching out. Because I can guarantee you right now, a lot of the people that are out there marching, a lot of the people that are out there protesting are feeling so sad, so miserable, so helpless. But to look around and seeing a wave of people, mm-hmm. a wave of movement happening that yeah. you're a part of, that we're all a part of. So maybe it's about reaching out to people you know, or sometimes it's just choosing to see those images, right? Mm -hmm. Like looking at those protests and noticing the fact that it's people lifting each other up. I will mention again, if that feeling of depression feels out of your control, there's no shame in that. And there's just something that goes on with our brains where it reaches a certain point and you just can't crawl out of it yourself. Please, please, please do seek help. I will also say, and I know I sound like my mom or something, but sleeping, eating, exercising, these are amazing things that we tend to stop doing as sadness starts to creep in. Mm-hmm. I've been trying to think of those as like my foundation. I feel sure. like if I'm not sleeping, I'm doing others a disservice because then I can't show up for them. And if your sadness feels manageable, I want to share with you some mental health techniques from Lucy Hone, who's the co-director of the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. She's also the author of the book, Resilient Grieving. New Zealand, by the way, very high in the list of happiness countries. They don't have snakes. That must be it. Helen points out two tips that really stuck with me. And these might sound obvious, but for me, just hearing them now, really, it was like the thing I needed to hear at this time. So number one is focus on what you can control. You can so easily fall into this pit of despair. And her point is just keep your eye on that opening of where can I do good? Where can I make a positive contribution? And by falling into that despair you end up doing nothing. Yeah. And I know there's this this weird balance where sometimes you do have to do nothing. Sometimes you have to rest. Sometimes you have to sleep. Sometimes you have to write to find out what it is that you're feeling. Sometimes you need professional help so you can get either medical attention or just talk to someone and Mm -hmm. find out what's there. So I don't want to suggest that it's like action, 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 action. But once you've taken the time to understand and to be able to put what you're experiencing into words, once you've gotten that rest, if you find a little bit of that energy and you're feeling just completely scattered, the point here is try to find that space where you have some influence, where you can do some good. And then number two is when you feel that sadness creeping in, ask yourself, is what I'm doing helping me or hurting me? So for example, is reading more news stories helping me get motivated to take action? Or is it actually settling hopelessness into my body? Is following social media and reading posts of people saying things that are hateful, is it helping me or is it hurting me? I think that's a really important question to ask ourselves on a regular basis because our negative emotions can serve us and they can serve others or they can pull us into this pit of emptiness and hopelessness. And so just checking in with yourself and saying, you know, I'm still awake scrolling through Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever. Is this helping me or is it hurting me? I know when everything first happened before I took any kind of action I found myself going on Facebook and reading looking for the negativity and the hatefulness and the racism and everything I was actually like 
looking for for what reason I don't know like I already know it's there and I already know where it's probably going to be coming from and who I should unfriend and all that other shit but what I did was I sat in there yeah. before, and it kept me from doing anything and sometimes you need it maybe you needed as fuel to get pissed off oh, yeah, yeah. and get up and do I something I didn't but I did you know what I mean like I didn't need any of that I didn't need to read I, what I was watching was enough to, right. to outrage that's me. why I think it's a really great tool because you start using your emotions for motion right you start checking with your emotion and going am I using this feeling for good whether it's for good for myself or for others hone has this beautiful point about loss and grieving she says don't lose what you have to what you have lost Hmm. in other words don't let the pain of what's already happened take away from the possibility of what can come next and with that in mind let's all use our sadness to help this movement move to a better tomorrow and thank you for listening to talk Talk psych to me